Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalanokas. Welcome to our latest special accompaniment podcast episode, which again is dedicated to the cover feature of this week's Autosport magazine. The current issue is our annual Big Questions feature, which is set and answered by former Formula One driver and Sky Sports presenter Karun Chandok. I'm delighted to say Karun is with us on the podcast today to discuss the topics he raises in his feature. So, hi Karun, how are you doing? I'm good, and I'm also excited to have finally learned how to pronounce your surname, so this has been a, a win-win of a morning. Excellent. Do you know what? When we, when, uh, when obviously all the remote sort of Zoom uh, press conferences were implemented by the FIA and F1 last year, Tom Clarkson was did obviously doing an excellent job as he always does. Totally mispronounced it in the first round. We then sent in a load of uh, video pre-recorded stuff for the next press conferences, and then I noticed that the following round, Tom had obviously heard me saying my own name and pronounced it perfectly. So I was like, oh, fair enough. I mean, I had no, I had no issue with anybody ever mispronouncing. It. Anyway, I've gone on off on a massive tangent for no reason. I should definitely introduce my second guest before we get into uh, Karun's feature and that is uh, is a man it's uh, it's my boss who had frankly the sheer audacity to take a day off during F1 launch and testing season to celebrate his own birthday it's uh, it's Autosports chief editor Kevin Turner how are you Kev I mean obviously happy birthday but I assume I mean some sort of massive lockdown lockdown remote zoom drinking call took place last night um, curry and beer was the main oh. thing, but p- perhaps perhaps the highlight was not doing a day of homeschooling. We just went <laughs> no, so um, we tried to get a little bit ahead on Wednesday. And as we uh, as we speak, my poor wife is trying to catch up the other bit from that we missed. So that hopefully by the end of today we will be where we should be. So um, yeah, that was that was perhaps the big bonus of my birthday was homeschooling out the window. Roll on March the eighth. Come on. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Right. Well, guys, let's get into uh, Karun, your feature in this week's Autosport magazine. As I said, what we're going to do is we're going to introduce all of the questions that you you yourself introduced in the feature and then have a little chat about what we think the answers are in sort of the various topics that we're covering there. And uh, your first question is, can Red Bull or the rule tweaks stop the Mercedes steamroller? And obviously, we're right back at the front of the grid immediately. Of course, we'd start at the front. So I just wanted to know, Karun, I mean, you, you say fairly on in, in the feature, you know, it there's no reason not to suspect that Mercedes won't be the favourite. So again, why are they so obviously uh, number one going into 2021? Well, I think, you know, we haven't got a huge change in the regulations, I think, um, in the grand scheme of things. If if you compare to what was changed in, in the past, let's say, for, um, you know, let's say the end of 2016 into 17 or, or what we're going to have next year, you know, those were huge changes. Um and even that didn't derail the the Mercedes steamroller back then. Um, they've got the same people, you know, running the technical side of things. They've got um, obviously the same drivers, uh, despite a very long drawn out, um, uh, you know, negotiation, which will which will come to in a bit. Uh, so they've got momentum, and you know we've seen this in the past when the team's got momentum on the side and stability. They, you know, it's very hard to stop that. However. I think there were signs towards the back end of last year that Red Bull was starting to get their head around their car. They they started the season on the back foot. Um, you know, neither driver seemed particularly happy with it. Max Max is an extraordinary talent, right? He, listen, let's all accept he's a once-in-a-generation talent that comes along, like Lewis, like Fernando and, and people like that. Um, and it's needed Max to, to drag that car into the fight. Uh, so... I think, though, towards the back end, we saw it in Sakir, unfortunately, he got taken up on the opening lap. We saw it in Abu Dhabi, of course, where he was, frankly, dominant um, in the Grand Prix. Um, so there were signs that the Red Bull recovery was there. The big question is, can they start the season? Can we get to the opening Grand Prix in Bahrain and for them to pick up where they left off last season? Um, if they can do that, then we've got to fight on for the season. Indeed. I mean, what do you make of all this? Uh, this I think it's it's more sort of off-season uh, speculation, people just wanting to see something interesting and all this sort of... this. Basically, what, what could Red Bull be hiding by not showing off the RB16B fully when yeah, they released... They did a filmy day, they released some videos and pictures. There were no pictures of the new car, nothing showing the back end. I mean, is it just a case of being extra cagey this year? Do we think they might have come up with something super special? Or is it just the way that the calendar's worked out with testing being a little bit later and, and taking place at the same venue? I think this is quickly becoming the most useless, pointless launch season of all time, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the teams are all not showing us their real cars and also admitting that they're not they're not even hiding the fact that they're not showing it off um i, I think some of it has got to do with the calendar right you know the the pre-season testing is now happening a in bahrain b it's happening later we've not got the opening race in melbourne so the the winter research and development time that the teams have got in the wind tunnel has, has obviously gotten longer um the fact that the first test is going to be, and the only test is going to be in Bahrain, so close to the first race, I think means that they want to hide as much as possible, not show their hand, so that it doesn't give the opposition a chance to react. Um, I strongly suspect that Mercedes won't be showing us their real car for 2021 either, um, and neither will Ferrari and, and, and anyone else. So um, 
you know, there's there's some bits that have trickled out. People like Alfa Tori, we've seen the you know a new nose and new front wing concept, for example. But I think there's a lot of gamesmanship going on. This you'd like to hope that there is a magic trick that Red Bull have found um, in terms of it was rear stability, wasn't it? And it's something that Alex Albon talked a lot about: is is rear instability on corner entry, particularly the medium speed stuff. Um, and, and that's something that that they wanted to address in terms of their car balance. Maybe a rear suspension tweak is going to give them that answer, but we we won't know. We may not get to know all of it in in the test. We might, uh, but certainly when we get to the the first race weekend, then all the cars will be on the table. Indeed, it was interesting hearing Sergio Perez talk yesterday. Obviously, he's he's, he's had his first chance to sample a bit of older Red Bull machinery, and obviously the the new car in a, in a filming day. And he says, you know, it's it's immediately obvious just how planted the front the front end is, and therefore, you know, what the issues the other drivers have been facing over the years. And um, but Kev, I know you're particularly frustrated by F1 launch season uh, as to, as it comes to arranging the front cover of Autosport magazine every week so far this this month. Oh, I've not known anything like it. I think normally because they're obviously in the flesh launches. Yeah, that's that has a lot of logistical things tied to it, so that you get things in the diary nice and early. You can plan things around it. But with these online launches, they can just go. Yeah, we might fan- we fancy doing it next Tuesday. That'd be good. Can we get anything in advance? No, we can't really be bothered. So it's been quite a, <laughs> it's been the, it's been an awkward uh, an awkward uh, launch season. And I think Karun's probably right as well in that we're probably seeing less of what we want to see. And the most we've talked about this already. The most different car in theory should be the McLaren, and they painted it to make it look like it was uh, the, exactly the same as last year. So it's been quite difficult to get too excited about it. I think to to sort of circle back to the sort of opening question, really. I think we're all. Yeah, all neutrals are desperate for Red Bull to get in the mix. Obviously, they've got two two things going for them this year they didn't have last year. They surely will start better because they finish better, and they will have hopefully two drivers that are going to be up uh, up near the front. I think the downside is I, I've just got this thing in the back of my mind. As I'm sure everyone has. Mercedes stopped developing that car at the Belgian Grand Prix. They've had two thirds of a season to go. Well, what can we do to make this this cutting of the floor away a bit trick? So what the hell are they going to come out with? Are they going to have stood still? I, it's not. It's not really their style, is it? So yeah, slightly concerned that uh, they're going to have something else a bit special. I mean, I think the W11 was a very special car. I don't think they'll find another leap over that, but they'll probably find enough to just stay out of uh, stay out of Max's reach, I suspect. And Karun, this is a point that you raise uh, in the feature in that the aerodynamicists and the engineers at the teams are, are all saying and we heard James Allison come out and say it in that excellent video that Mercedes produced you know that the changes that, that, that are coming for this year even though a lot of the design is being carried over they do add up to something quite considerable in terms of an aerodynamic challenge but it might not be all that much that you know observers are watching and fans are watching when they when they look on TV but do you think that what the teams have been asked to do could throw a spanner in the works for Mercedes and as as you say as well in the feature the tyres as well new tyres finally coming in didn't have any new ones last year that that could be the real the real you know thing that could scupper Mercedes because all teams have as we've seen at various times since uh, when was it 2011 and Pirelli came in have been caught out on, on at least the odd occasion well this is the funny thing isn't it in our sport where you've got engineers it's, it's driven by engineering it's driven by aerodynamics and designers um, you know ultimately dictate the pecking order in many ways of of the racing they operate in this in this sort of world of numbers and their metric of a massive change is completely different to 
the the fans you know watching on television so in their eyes when they suddenly see a piece of the floor going missing and a whole bunch of downfalls falling off it it amounts to an enormous change which in their world it is um but it's just perspective isn't it you know i think if you lined up the car the last year's car versus alongside this year's car there are very very few people um you know on the planet outside of designers and engineers in formula 1 who would actually be able to tell the difference of which one is which so uh, i think we have to keep perspective you know in the grand scheme of the world this this is in the car where suddenly double diffusers have been banned or this is in a regulation change where you know all of a sudden ground effects are gone for example so that's a massive change in my world um so i i think the tires could be interesting because we know that they are a bit temperamental you know the 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 operating window is quite small the sweet spot to get the tires in the right in the right temperature uh, and pressure balance for qualifying particularly for the one lap as well as for the race is is a real challenge in the pirelli era um and that could be quite an effect can it you know alex you were you you were listening to the drivers as much as me after they tried it last year in in the few practice sessions i think they had three goes at it last year in fp1 fp2 sessions and they weren't particularly complimentary then so um i'll be interested to see when we when we get going this year what it's like no particularly uh, lewis hamilton not happy particularly i mean the weight that's added is 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 reasonably significant obviously the cars have got even heavier as as a result this year i think there's also minor uh, the weight allowance has gone up around the power unit as well um but yeah i just on on the tires thing i always think uh, you know that could be an opportunity maybe mercedes might misread things but then i always go back to the bahrain grand prix and practice there where they spent more time than anybody else running those prototype tires because they they knew their car was was that good that they could afford to sacrifice a bit of weekend work to gain to gain an advantage in 2021 it's just a case of uh, the rich getting richer as it were and um, but let's move on to your next question in your feature Karun, which is will Lewis Hamilton retire at the end of 2021 and I was I, I found it really interesting reading what you wrote because yeah it, it was really strange that we got into a significant part of the early bit of 2021 passing and the reigning world champion hadn't re-signed with the team where he's where he's where he's worked since 2013 you know he, i think it's like going on the f1 2021 wikipedia page to, to to look up like the schedule or whatever there was there, there was a missing driver in the mercedes lineup it was it was a bit it was all a bit strange and as you say the team did a very good job of saying look you know we just wanted to work things out properly we wanted you know to take our time and and get things right you know as and when we could things have been difficult with the pandemic but yeah it was a it was a bit bizarre when when you when you really sort of dig dig, dig down into it so yeah i mean what what's your sense what do you think is is, is going to happen with lewis at the end of this year i think the ball is in his court isn't it really um you know he he can make that decision if he wins the eighth world championship um is that enough for him to be the most successful driver across every statistic of all time is that enough or as he still got the motivation to to come back with a new regulation change and a new era of f1 and ultimately i think it's not a question that actually although i asked the question it's not actually a question that any of us can answer was my sort of conclusion because the ball is firmly in his court you know i i don't i don't think that mercedes will force the issue because they've got an abundance of drivers that they can stick in that car and be very very competitive yeah you know, um have they got uh, uh, sorry or are there drivers out there of lewis's standard 
no. You know, I still think he is um, he is the number one driver on the grid at the moment. If you look at consistent performances week in, week out, you'd have to say he's still at the top of his game. Um, you know, the likes of Verstappen and Leclerc uh, and Ricardo, absolutely brilliant drivers. And I would put those three as jointly with Lewis in your sort of A-plus category of drivers based on 2020 alone. Um but, you know, you still saw Leclerc making mistakes on the opening lap on a few occasions. You saw Verstappen um, potentially give, you know, throwing away a win in Turkey when he tried to pass Checo in a risky move. So you still see those moments, whereas Lewis, I think, there's this maturity and calmness about the way he goes about a race weekend where even if he's not on pole, even if he's not leading the opening half a dozen laps of the race... He doesn't panic anymore. He he lets the race unfold. His tire management has become so good. We saw at races like Portugal or Imola, you know, he unleashes the lap times in a very Michael Schumacher-esque way when he needs to. And that's what wins him the Grand Prix. So, you know, I think Mercedes will, of course, miss Lewis should he choose to go. And because of that, I think the ball is very much in Lewis's court. Indeed, indeed. I mean, Kev, I just also wanted to, to cover off the other side of the Mercedes garage and talk about Valtteri Bottas because it's, it also struck me that, you know, we haven't heard all that much about Valtteri 4.5 or whatever the, uh, whatever the you know, the 2.0 thing that I got a bit sick of everybody doing that as well. Hasn't been that much sort of uh, coming out about, you know, can Bottas, is this his year? What's he got to do to change things? It's, it's more been a focus on uh, Verstappen and Red Bull, presumably because of the momentum that they, uh, they gathered um, by winning that final race. So do you see anything particularly changing uh, for Bottas because say Hamilton were to walk away at the end of 2021 and as Karine says I think yeah you're right that the, the, the ball is very much in his court Mercedes would want to at least keep hold of a known quantity in Bottas and have some stability if it has to bring in George Russell or another one of the, the drivers on its books so you know what are you thinking about Bottas for this year? Well first of all I think we know the answer to can Bottas beat Hamilton don't we? You know, he's never going to do it over a full set. You know, I, you know, you'd need a combination of factors um, that got that such as got Nico Rosberg over the line in 2016. And Rosberg was doing things behind the scenes, I think, that Bottas wouldn't be prepared to. Bottas is a very apolitical a character and he wants to go out and beat Lewis fair and square, which is why that dynamic works uh, and why it works from Sadie's as a one and two, because he can't do it consistently. He can do it on the odd occasion. Um, and I think I can't see any reason why that would, why that would change. Um, but I think that, um, I, I agree with what Karun says about um, Mercedes and it, the, the ball being in Lewis's court because it does have a knock-on effect for that second car because, as you say, if, if Lewis does decide to go, yeah, actually, I've had enough, eight world titles, 100 and something wins, I'm going to go and do something else, then you Bottas stays again, doesn't he? He, he stays at Mercedes because they're going to want the continuity. If Lewis says, yeah, I fancy these new rules and the, and the more wheel-to-wheel racing... Then you then you say goodbye to Bottas and you bring George Russell in and Bottas maybe goes you know you he, he would he'd still be you know a good signing for another team but if you've got Lewis in the bag and you've got George who's going to be ready like we know he's ready already yeah three years in a back end car is more than the the next mega stars normally spend there um, so yeah I think it's it's George it's George Russell and, and Bottas that will be kind of almost more nervous about what Lewis is going to decide to do than Mercedes probably that Sakir weekend was fascinating for that reason wasn't it because effectively Mercedes could have done the less excited thing and put Stoffel in but I think they they almost created this shootout really for who is going to be 
the number one pick alongside Lewis, should Lewis choose to stay, and should Lewis choose to go, then maybe they could have both of them. But uh, I, I thought, you know, that 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 was a brave decision, I thought. Um, and they, they deserve a bit of credit, actually, for not doing the, the less exciting thing there. Absolutely. I mean, as I said, I think I wrote a column just, uh, just after the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, which basically said, you know, I'm fantastic. I'm really glad to see Lewis Hamilton was able to recover really quickly from COVID. And he did he did really well being being ill and being able to come back in the race. But it cost us the chance to see part two of the, the Russell Bottas fight. And I think that would have been really, really interesting because there were there were sort of strange factors around that Sakia weekend. It was a new track. You know, the, the, the starts, Bottas just seemed to not ever be able to get off the line in Bahrain. So it just would have been interesting to see if Russell could have uh, taken the fight to him on, on, a, on another track. I don't understand why they put Lewis in the car for that final round because, you know, I think you should, even people that have, have COVID quite, to a mild degree can have it, it the, the lasting effects can go on for a, for a while some people it's months and months some people it's weeks and um, you know he said afterwards he's never been more shattered after I just don't understand why he was in the car really he might as well have just spent longer recovering put George in again uh, because it, it was just a risk I didn't think he or Mercedes really needed to take I know he was really eager to get back in and get back on the wagon but I don't think we saw Prime Lewis in Abu Dhabi he didn't need to from a team or drivers championship point of view um, maybe it took the pressure off Bottas a bit. Maybe they didn't want to wreck Bottas's confidence going into the off season. Um, but yeah, I thought that was a bit. I, I thought that was a bit of a strange call, to be honest. I'm not wading into this because I put a tweet out merely suggesting that it'd be nice for Lewis to have an early winter, have a holiday, and it'll be night. It'll be cool to see George and Jack Aitken, of course, get another opportunity um, because you learn so much more on your second weekend. And I got so much abuse from the Lewis Hamilton fan club and from all these people going, oh, you want Lewis to have COVID? You know, how sick but are you? He did have COVID. But he, yeah. It's like, how are you, you know, you wish for him to still be ill. It's like, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, I, I, no, I'm saying he should just have an early winter. It's got nothing to do with, of course, why would I want him to have COVID? Anyway, I got so much abuse. I actually got off. I had to leave social media for 10 days because it was just... It was ridiculous. Um, and, uh, but yeah, there you go. Kev, just going back to a point you, you said about Valtteri Bottas to introduce the next question in Karun's feature regarding Sergio Perez. You said that, you know, he, he's consistently at Lewis's level, but he only occasionally beats him and, and, you know, betters him over the course of the weekend. And that, I think, is the key thing regarding Perez at Red Bull and Max Verstappen. So Karun's question is, is Sergio Perez the right choice for Red Bull? And in terms of what he has to do, that he's got to do what, what Bottas does. I mean, I'm sure Bottas doesn't want to do that. And I'm sure Perez wouldn't want to do that either, be just a little bit behind Verstappen, occasionally beat him. But it's just that that's what Red Bull needs him to do because that's what Pierre Gasly and Alex Albon haven't been able to do since Daniel Ricciardo left. So, Karun, why was Perez the right choice uh, for that role? What what are his strengths? What does he add to Red Bull for this year? Well, I think, you know, as I, as I pointed out in the piece, I think he was the right choice off the options available to them. Um, as I mentioned before, I think your, your A-plus stars are Lewis, Max, Charles and, and Daniel at the moment. You know, they've already got one of them and they, they weren't going to get the other three to, to drive alongside Max. So, therefore, you, Perez, I think, was the next best choice. You know, he finished fourth in the World Championship last year despite missing two races with COVID and, and you know, getting that engine failure early in Abu Dhabi. Um, 
you know, his, his strike rate in terms of scoring points was amazing. And I think if you looked at the, the drives he put together in Turkey and in Bahrain, you know, coming from the back of the grid to, to, to win that race, he, he put himself in a position where they couldn't ignore him. You know, he did too good a job to be ignored. I think it would have been unfair for them to have passed up on, on a guy who was a free, available in the market, had done a great job, is actually now matured and experienced, which he wasn't when he had the opportunity to go to McLaren in 2013. He was too immature at that point to make use of it. Um, so I, I think he was absolutely the right choice um, for them this season. They don't need him to beat Max, as, as you rightly pointed out. But what they need is for him to stay within a few seconds of Max so that it doesn't allow Mercedes to do the cheeky under, undercut on them or it gives them the opportunity to perhaps bring Perez into play. You know, if, if they're running a race where you got, I don't know, let's say Lewis, Valtteri, um, Max, one, two, three, as they often were within, let's say, five seconds of each other and Perez is three or four seconds behind, they could use Perez to do an undercut you know, pit three, four laps earlier than everybody else. And that will still be close enough to force the issue up ahead, you know, which they could never do with with Alex or with Gasly. And I think that's what they need. They just need another dog in the fight to try and mess Mercedes up um, strategically. Yeah, I agree with that. I think we, we've seen on occasion you apply that pressure to Mercedes and, and they, they do crack. I mean, you, you see the, the, the bizarre mistakes like we saw at Monza last year from both uh, from both Hamilton and the team in not noticing the pit lane was closed. You know, we've seen these little these little blips over the year that, that obviously the pit lane gaff in the Sakir Grand Prix. And when you, you know, if you, if you have got that opportunity with two cars, you can execute it. And actually Mercedes itself showed that that was possible at Imola, where Hamilton was able to get past uh, both Bottas and Verstappen. Okay, Bottas had the damage, but they did, you know, they, it was the, it was the fact they had a second car. They could use a second st uh, strategic option to play there. Um, but Kev, how, how do you see it playing out? Do you think Perez will be able to get to the level that Red Bull need him to? Because he's he's in a difficult position of not having a lot of testing. Uh, going into 2021, like obviously half the time they would have had in 2020. So he's he's you know it's still going to be a tough job for him to do that. Yeah, I think um, qualifying could be tricky because Max is amazing at that. And there were times last year where Sergio did make Lance Stroll look quite good at qualifying, which he shouldn't really have done. He got that together in the second half of the year, to be fair. Um, but I think in the races he should be much closer. You know, he. I, I, I think this. You might say this isn't exactly an enormous prediction, but I don't think he'll be as close as Ricciardo. But I think he'll be closer than Gasly and Albon. Now you might say that's quite a big window to slot into, and I think it really shows how good Daniel Ricciardo was and is, and how they've struggled to replace him. But yeah, I think I think probably he he will do a good enough. He'll do a good enough job to get, make the Red Bull decision for twenty twenty two quite tricky. I should think. Because there might be some interesting drivers on the market then, um, and, and and I think he'll do a good enough job that we'll be we'll be saying, oh, should he stay? Will he get another chance? This I don't think he'll I don't think he'll be a sort of busted flush halfway through the season. No, and, and it's interesting, um, Karina. I wanted to ask you about one of the drivers who would be an option for twenty twenty two, but isn't for twenty twenty one. That's Alex Albon because obviously he's lost his drive to Sergio Perez, but you know he wasn't bumped down to Alpha Tauri as when it was Toro Rosso, Daniel Kvyat was in 2016, Pierre Gasly in 2019. Um, you know, straight down to reserve driver and we've got Gasly. There's no reason to suspect he won't continue doing the excellent job he did last year in a team that 
clearly he enjoys being at he enjoys driving that car they they, they you know they set it up in a way that gives the drivers a lot of options in terms of setup and making things um, as straightforward as they can for them and you've got Yuki Tsunoda who's a really high rated rookie at the environment that's designed to develop young Red Bull drivers so if Perez does a good deal at Red Bull if the two Alpha Tauri drivers do a good job uh, this year I I just struggle to see where Albon's going to get his opportunity to come back in. So is this, you know, what what do we think might the future hold for Alex Albon? I, I think you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, he wasn't going to go to to AlphaTauri. You know, they, they weren't going to biff Gasly after the season Gasly's had. Uh, and Sonoda was, I think, a done deal a long time ago. Uh, so he's obviously got some opportunities now outside of Formula One with, with DTM and, and things they've created for him. Um, it's hard, you know. As soon as you, as soon as you're outside, you know, as soon as you've gotten off the Ferris wheel in Formula One, unless you're a Michael Schumacher, Fernando Alonso, Alan Prost, Nigel Mansell, you know, established world champion driver, it's quite hard to have a time away from F1, I think, and get back onto the Ferris wheel, but. I mean, just you, you only need to look at Kvyat, isn't he? You know, he's had more Formula One comebacks than Nigel Mansell. So you never know. Just a last thought on that is one of our one of our colleagues uh, Autosport was suggesting that maybe Albon ends up in almost like a Sebastian Boemi like situation where he's a long term Red Bull driver, but he's, he's got to apply his trade in other series. And we know he was going to get his break in Formula E before he came to Formula One. So everybody likes him. He's a good he's a good guy. So we uh, we wish him all the well for the for the future. And um, but let's move on to your next question, Karun, which is will Carlos Sainz thrive at Ferrari? And I'm actually going to throw that to you directly. Will he thrive at Ferrari? Is this is this is he going to do well in what is or famously throughout his history a tough situation, even though it's one of the most famous and, and best teams in Formula One? I am really intrigued to see how this plays out. I really, really am intrigued. I mean, you know, Carlos is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because you look at his Toro Rosso career and he was right up there with Max and you think, OK, he's, he's pretty mega. Then he went to Renault um, and it didn't really happen for him, did it? You know, he didn't blow Hulkenberg away uh, in the same way that Daniel ended up actually beat, blowing Hulkenberg away. So it didn't, it didn't really happen for him there. Uh, and then he went to McLaren where I thought he was brilliant over the last two years. Uh, but he was alongside a rookie teammate, so not, not someone who was an established benchmark. So now I think for the first time, we, we're going to see him up against a driver that we know is a genuine, genuine future world champion. You know, he's not a star of the future, a star of today, but he, uh, Leclerc is a proper, proper A-list driver. Um, and I, I'm genuinely intrigued. I think it's a great opportunity for Carlos. If he... If he can get up there and, and be a, an equal to Leclerc, that is that could potentially be the best driver lineup I think on the grid. I think that combination is 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 really really strong. Um, they've got different strengths. I think Leclerc is sensational over one lap. You look at what he did in Sakir last year, the quali lap there. Um, you look at his race performance in Silverstone, for example, the tyre management there was sensational when other people were blowing up tyres. Um, but on the flip side, I think Carlos perhaps makes less mistakes. He's very, very good technically. Um, if you listen back to his, his radio conversations, um, which I know Ferrari mentioned that they did before they signed him, they listened back to his, his radio traffic uh, to see how he handled the race. 
Um, and I often do that in the commentary box, you know, when we, we have the, um, the pit lane channel, you can tune in. And he's, he's brilliant at reading a race in a very Alonso Schumacher-esque way. You, you can see him sort of thinking ahead and seeing how like, this guy's doing this and this guy's going to do that. So we need to do this and this is how this will unfold. So, you know, I think he's got the experience and maturity, the speed, the consistency to do the job. Um, and I'm, I, the ball's in his court, you know. He's, uh, he's got a fantastic opportunity to, to prove that he's up there with one of Formula One's current A-listers. He certainly does. But I think, Kev, there's also a, a big factor in terms of Ferrari itself has got to bring something to the party this year. And I know you and I have, have chatted about how in 2019, 2018, whatever it was doing with its engine, it actually did manage to sort of shoot itself in the foot twice. It meant that Mercedes went, wow, we've got to throw everything at the W11 and we've really got to be better and was better. And then the FIA clamped down on Ferrari and Ferrari went backwards. So it was it was quite a uh, quite a, a, a situation how that developed. But yeah, I mean, surely they can't be as bad as they were last year. And that would presumably boost both Sainz and Leclerc this year. Yeah, for, from Sainz's point of view, it would probably be quite handy if they were a bit better, but not right at the front just yet. Because if, see, if you're at the front, you know, any mistake or error or margin to your teammate is, you know, is, is just really obvious, isn't it? Whereas if you're a little bit back from that, you can kind of get away with it to a certain degree, a little bit more. And obviously Ferrari is a, is a pressure environment. So probably from science's point, it'd be perfect if the car was a bit better, they could finish probably third in the constructors championship. Uh, and, um, uh, but it's not quite at the front. So he has a little bit of bedding in time because I think matching Leclerc will be, a real challenge but if he's well he's going to be closer than Vettel I mean we talked about this before if you doubled Leclerc's score from last year for I would actually have been fourth in the Constructors Championship instead of sixth now that's quite a big that's quite a big difference really that shows how far Seb has fallen away unfortunately which I'm sure we'll get to a bit later um, so yeah I think um, I think I, I, I agree with Kroon I think it's really interesting I think that's a really good lineup. I think science is knocking on the door of that elite club uh, that like, I, I agree with Karun on on that club, um, uh, and he and, and science isn't quite in it yet, but could be, and it sort of depends how he how he stacks up at Ferraris to whether he becomes an A grade or it's like a oh no he's just re- he's almost like more of a Bottas. And Karun, do you think that you know science coming in for this year could it be the sort of the cliche? Although you know it has has been shown to work in the past that. Uh, and another driver coming in that's very highly rated um, actually boosts the, the driver at the other side of the garage as well in terms of Leclerc. Do you think that this might help his development, help him to find an extra few tenths um, where needed or if needed? I think Leclerc last year was performing at a very, very high level, despite the fact that he knew probably quite early in the season that he had that three, four tenth margin over Seb. Um, you know, I, I think he's still... He's young enough and motivated enough to to want to still hammer out the absolute maximum every single time. So I, I don't think that's really going to be an issue here. Uh, I think the biggest question is really what happens with the Ferrari power unit when we get to the first race. That, to me, that that's the big one in, in so many ways in this whole conversation is are we talking about a team who are who have got, as I said, potentially the best driver lineup um, on the grid fighting to be the fourth, fifth best team or are they going to be back up there fighting for, for wins? 
Indeed, indeed. I think there's some positive noises coming out from what we heard from uh, Alfa Romeo guys at the launch. Obviously, they'll be running the Ferrari power unit. Um, but let's move on from Ferrari as Sebastian Vettel is doing for this year and stay with Vettel. Karin, your next question is, can Vettel resurrect his F1 career um, with his move to Aston Martin? I mean, yeah, how do you see that playing out? It's sort of like they obviously wanted him. They wanted his status and his achievements. And, and you know, he just he just has a good a good aura and a good it's a good fit in terms of what they're trying to do with that brand but is it going to work from his point of view it's it's a team that's that's on the up it's a it's a race winning outfit last year things didn't quite go as well as they could early on in the season but it still proved you know it's got it's got a good package for this year so yeah how do you see that that working out for for Vettel I think it'll go well I think culturally it's it's a good environment for him I think Seb actually likes racing and working with British teams if you look at his career, um, you know, with, with Red Bull, he really worked well with the people there and, and thrived in that environment. In his junior formula career, he was with Carl in motorsport, you know, and Trevor talks about how how good he was there and, and you know, the relationships they were able to form. And I think culturally, it just seemed a little bit of a misfit um, for him at, at Ferrari, I think. I know he had success at Toro Rosso before, I, I'm you know, fully aware of that. I'm not sort of glossing over that. But I think if Seb can... Something has, has gone off, hasn't it? There's a switch that's gone off somewhere inside of him um, since the middle of 2018. The, this, the, the driver we've seen since the middle of 2018 for the last two and a half seasons is not the same driver we saw for the previous seven, eight years, apart from maybe 2014, where he, where he had that wobble. So... You know, I'm hoping that when he comes to Aston Martin, that in the same way that he recovered from 2014 and, and started 2015 strongly, he's able to do the same. He, he, he just needs a change of environment, change of scene, change of people, uh, a new challenge. Um, and if, if you don't lose talent, you know, that doesn't go. It's, it's, you're born with that. You're, he's born with natural ability and talent. He just needs to rediscover the method to how to channel that into delivering on track. Indeed. Kev, how do you see him going up against Lance Stroll? Because with the greatest respect to Lance Stroll, and I, I don't, I'm not implying or, or saying, suggesting that he's a bad racing driver or a slow racing driver, but he has a reputation of, everyone sort of expects his teammates to beat him all the time in terms of Stroll. So how do you see Vettel going up against him? It's, it's his team. It's, you know, it's, it's, that's, what, that's what the environment is now. So how do you see it working? He's, I mean, yeah, Lance Stroll is a is a better driver than he gets gets credit for, but he's not a rookie anymore, and he's still not. You know, he had various opportunities to deliver last year, and and he and he just didn't quite do it. Uh, Vettel's got to blow him away, I think, really, um, to kind of regain some of the cred- credibility he's lost. I, I, I agree with Kroon. I think it's quite similar to the twenty fourteen fifteen situation in that. Vettel struggles when there's a real hot shoe in the other car, I think. Uh, you know, let, with all due respect to Mark Webber, I think Vettel knew that he was always going to beat him at Red Bull or normally over across the season. So he was the, you know, the sort of blue-eyed boy at Red Bull and that that was great. And then Ricardo came in and, oh, this is a bit different. And Seb didn't like the car either. Uh, and it threw him off his game. Fresh start Ferrari. You know, Kimi Raikkonen wasn't really a problem at any point during there their time together so that was happy days and then an, another megastar joins and he throws him off again so I think from that point of view the environment Aston Martin with Stroll should be should be great and he should be able to rediscover his, his mojo I think if he doesn't 
if he doesn't kind of comfortably see off Stroll, then that's probably going to be the end of his F1 career. But but I agree, it'd be a sad way if he if his career ended on on a you know a poor last year at Ferrari and then a mediocre one at Aston and then it kind of just withered away. That would be a real a real shame. You know, he's he's not that old. He should have he should have some more good races left in him. I'd have thought. Indeed, indeed. Well, let's move on to, Corinne, your next question, which is, can Fernando Alonso lift Alpine to the front of Class B? But just before we do that, I think I picked up as we were about to hit record that, uh, Corinne, you and Kev, do you slightly disagree with how much progress the team has made or the calculation in terms of how much it gained uh, last year? Well, I I calculated um, that Renault, as they were known last year, was the fifth best team last season. But when, when I actually looked at the numbers... It's super tight. You know, I had um, McLaren in fourth, uh, 1.33 off of uh, the Mercedes pace, Renault 1.42 off, off Mercedes and Ferrari 1.43. So, you know, those three teams within within a tenth, basically, of a percentage. So, um, yeah, su- super tight between those three. But I had Renault as the as a sort of fifth best team. And they finished fifth last year. So um, I think Kev had a, a slightly different number out of that. Yeah, I've got two things to say. First of all, I would like to publicly apologise to Kroon for not actually consulting him on the change that I made to his copy, which is most uh, most outrageous and uh, an oversight. That I would, we would normally go back and have a bit of a chat about it, but that's, uh, I apologise for that. Yeah, the reason that I changed it was um, we've got quite an established uh, thing with the magazine and uh, and on autosport.com, but particularly in the, in the magazine of the Super Times. Um, which is at best you, you you're well versed on this Alex the the best time across the weekend uh calculated is 100% and then all in relation to that and on those calculations we had uh Renault in 6 so I changed it uh just so it, co- it it linked and coincided with what we'd done in the season review otherwise I thought that, that would look, you'd have to be an eagle-eyed reader admittedly to have spotted across those two issues but I um yeah so I matched it up so that it didn't look like we were contradicting ourselves but I think uh, so it's probably just the way you slice the numbers. Out. I think it's that 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 uh, the gaps, um, uh, McLaren, Ferrari, and Renault were all were all very close. You might argue and say was Ferrari lifted slightly by Leclerc's mega laps, but then you could say the same, I guess, probably with Ricardo at Renault as well. So I think it evens out. They were very very close. I think Caroon's overall point, which is they could have been third, but actually they weren't, is is kind of the good point really. And also it highlights again just how tight things are in that midfield area. It's it's it's, it's incredible. And as well, I mean, just to, to go back to the question, can Fernando Alonso lift Alpine to the front of Class B? As with a lot of other teams this could apply to, it's even harder to do that this year because we're expecting Ferrari to be better. We're expecting Perez to be better than Albon was at Red Bull. So it's going to be, you, you would think on paper, fewer opportunities for the midfield teams to, to get podiums, to, to get amongst you know things at the front of the grid. So therefore, they, they, their totals would correspondingly potentially be, be lower for this year. So yeah, it is, it's going to be tougher. But Karun, with Alonso, he has this, this presence, he has this reputation, he has all this success in motorsport. So can he do it? Can he help the team? gain ground from where it where it ended 2020. Yeah, I, I think, you know, in some ways the big loss is actually not having seen Alonso alongside Daniel for, for this uh, this season. I think that would have been fun to see, actually. Um, you know, Fernando is unbelievably motivated. Even at this age, he's, 
he's a fierce competitor, isn't he? You know, I was talking to some people at Renault last year and they said he was just a pain in the backside because he was texting them with ideas and, and asking questions about, you know, why are you doing this on the run plan? Why are you doing this? Why have you, why have you used this tire? You know, he's just, he, he's, uh, he's just a machine. Um, and obviously a brilliant, brilliant racing driver. But I think where, where they'll benefit is his intellect. You know, Fernando, I still believe is one of the most intelligent racing drivers we've had in Formula One, uh, probably ever. You know, he's he's very very cerebral. Uh, you you just need to talk to people like Pat Simmons or you know Alan Pomain who who were in debriefs with him, uh, and they will will they'll tell you the same. So, I think he is absolutely the right driver because he's also now got the experience um, and therefore the credibility to force the issue, you know, when, when things need to happen and things need to change, he, he's he's there as a force of nature to help things move along and happen. They've obviously had a lot of changes, haven't they, on the management side, you know, Cyril's gone, you've got Brivio coming in, you've got, you know, uh, Jerome Stoll's gone, you've got different management structure, apart from obviously the, the obvious rebrand into Alpine. But from a technical standpoint, nothing's seems to have changed there which is good you know they've got stability with i think i i really rate pat fry i think he's you know he's a good solid uh experienced person there alongside people like martin bukowski and alan pomain you know that they, they're uh pilbeam is is a fantastic engineer to have on the pit wall to steer the ship so i think that the race team are very good uh, so they've got all the ingredients to be best of the rest shall we say behind mercedes red bull but as you guys mentioned, you know, we're expecting Ferrari to be better. Um, McLaren have got the Merck engine this year. And I think, um, you know, that they're a team that were on the up. We, we saw in terms of their, their performance and consistency. They achieved a level of consistency in 2020, which they didn't in 2019. You know, they still had a few weak races in 2019. So I think that battle and, and Aston Martin, of course, and are going to be in there as well. So that battle between third and sixth is going to be sensational to watch um yet again indeed and obviously uh, aston martin um their point score would would you know they won't have to factor in the uh the the points that they were deducted because of the uh the brake ducts at the, the, the ferrari at the start of the year god that seems like a long time ago it wasn't even a year ago and all that was kicking off and obviously das being protested by uh by red bull and everything at the austrian grand prix but um let's move on to your next question karun um which i think is a really interesting one in terms of driver lineups possibly just shaded by leclerc and science and how interested i am in seeing how this one develops and that's how will lando norris stack up against daniel ricardo you got norris coming into his third f1 season you know he's he's a uh, He's he's well established now. He's not, he's he's still very very young, but he's a, he's a, he's a, a long term Formula One driver. Um, very very quick, very, very does very very well, very impressive, Lando Norris. But he's going up against Daniel Ricciardo, who, as we know, is is rapid from his time at Red Bull and is a proven race winner. So, but also they're both great personalities, and I'm just really looking forward to seeing how they get on and the things that they get up to. But in terms of the on track performance, Green, how do you think the two of them are gonna are gonna get on against each other? It's a bit like Ferrari. Um, I'm, you know, it's another one that I'm, I'm intrigued about, frankly. Uh, I think there's, you know, with, with most of the others, you kind of know who, or you kind of have a feeling of who's going to be the number one. I think with with these two, McLaren and Ferrari, it's a much harder one to pick, uh, if I'm honest. I think the, um, you know, they're both excellent qualifiers. I mean, some of Daniel's quali laps last year were just amazing. And 
Uh, we know he's a great racer. We know he's a great overtaker. You know, he, he's 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 got very few weaknesses, if any, really, uh, which is what makes him one of those A plus A plus listers. Um, McLaren are on the up, aren't they? You know, they've got fresh money and investment come in. Obviously, you know, there's been some issues there from a financial standpoint as a group. What they've done now with the restructuring and the investment has separated and kind of isolated the F1 team from any other issues that are going on, which is which is, I think, a really good way to go about it. Um, you know, you got James Key and Andreas Seidel running the race team. I, I think with the Merck engine, they, they're in a fantastic position. And a team like McLaren needs an established race winner to, you know, to, to drive this forward, I think. And, and Daniel is the right person for it. It's a great chance for Lando. I, I think, you know, Lando's well-liked and well-established within the team. Like Carlos alongside Charles, um, you know, I think there's an opportunity for Lando to establish himself even more. In, not that he needs needs to establish him, but even more cemented his position in F1's pecking order uh, against a proven race winner. Indeed. And Kev, I mean, how much do you think McLaren gains um, with Ricardo coming on board? You know, as Karin said, it's clear what he, what he brings in terms of his, his past successes. But he's he also revealed that he's there for three years. You know, he's he's invested in this. Like, OK, yeah, all contracts in anything really can be renegotiated if, you, if everybody really wants them to. But he's obviously been enticed by that McLaren project. I think he's, he's he, he likes the idea of working with Andreas Seidel and building a team on the up now. It's got Mercedes power and things like that. So, you know, what can that what can what can the team achieve now with with this change? It's a nice seal of approval for them, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think he was the best option for them uh, as well. It was it was, you know, it was really good to get an established race win. I agree uh, with Karun on that. I think, you know, now's the right time for them to get a drive. Like, I think when they had uh, Alonso who I I'm a huge fan of. I think probably got to the point where that they weren't in a position to have a driver of that caliber, and they needed a kind of a reset and a kind of yeah. You know, the science Norris dynamic was fresh and fun, and you know it wasn't GP2 engine radio comments every other weekend, that sort of thing. And that kind of was a nice reset. They rebuilt it, but I think they're now ready for a race winner, someone you know who I, I think he's you know good enough. When he retires, we could well be talking about him as one of the best F1 drivers not to win a world championship. Um, if that opportunity doesn't doesn't come his way, um, so I mean I do expect Ricardo to lead that team uh, once he's once he's bedded in. But I think Lando has got enough about him uh, that he can learn from him. He's already said that obviously that's one of his intentions, um, and I think it should be you know they're both quite sort of fun individuals, but but you know hard races on track. So I think it's it should be a really good a really good combination and a continuing. Um, of the McLaren rides, I think the difficulty now is that they're in. They arguably overperformed last year because of Ferrari's poor season and, and racing points penalty. To stay third in the constructors' championship will be quite a, quite a challenge, I think, even with them firing on all cylinders. So, um, yeah, that that I think will be challenging. But um, yeah, I, I think that the dynamic between those two is you know is, is going to be really interesting. Well, let's come on to, Karin, your next question, which is who will be the season's best rookie? You've got Mick Schumacher and Nikita Mazepin at Haas, and as we said, Yuki Tsunoda, Alpha Tauri. Um, but, but starting with uh, the Haas lineup, it's interesting. I, I agree with, with the point you raised in your piece. It's interesting how Ferrari, the way it's placed its juniors 
in Formula One this year has actually sort of made it a little bit harder for Haas and, and for its rookies because you've got an all-rookie lineup at that team where you, they could have shuffled things around that Mick Schumacher could have gone and raced alongside Raikkonen and Alfa Romeo and brought Giovinazzi across to, to Haas, um, obviously, which also runs the Ferrari engine. So, yeah, how, how do you see that factor? How, how, you know, how important could that be in, in this consideration? Yeah, it's a bit confusing, isn't it? Because, you know, I think Giovinazzi is, is, a, is a good driver. He's done a, a, a decent job, but I can't see him ever ending up in, in the works Ferrari cars. It's, you know, he's most likely going to end up driving for Ferrari's Le Mans program, isn't he, alongside people like Robert Schwartzman and, and people like that. Um, you know, the Ferrari Academy drivers who don't end up driving the red cars in F1, basically. So... You know, why not put Mick alongside Kimi? Because Kimi's a, a good reference, a good benchmark. Um, you know, he, he he will be able to pull Mick along in this first season, especially with the limited testing we've got. So I don't get why they haven't done that. Uh, and you could have put Giovinazzi at, at Haas. So it, to me, it's a slightly odd, odd way they've gone about that. Um but, you know, to go back to your original question about best of the rookies, I, I'm really intrigued to see how Sonoda gets along. You know, the the tricky thing with the Haas drivers is their reference is going to be each other, isn't it? So it's actually going to be quite hard to judge them without a proven reference. Whereas at least with Sonoda, we know Gasly's coming off the back of probably his best season in F1, um, or definitely his best season in F1. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a good benchmark there for... For Sonoda, so um, you you know you'd have to expect based on last season that the Alpha Tauri is going to be ahead of Haas. So when you come back to who's going to end up as the best rookie, it is probably going to be Sonoda. Um, you'd like to think at the end of this, indeed. And Kev, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot and say you know I want you as well to 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 make a selection because it's interesting as Green raises in his piece. Mick Schumacher is an F2 and F3 champion. He's got pedigree. He's got. Um, you know, all that experience. But Mazepin doesn't have the greatest of reputation in many areas, uh, but has got a lot of F1 experience in terms of private testing because he's been able to to run uh, Mercedes cars in private. Uh, whereas Sonoda lacks lots of experience in, in, in lots of junior formulas, although, you know, did, did very well in, in, in the junior ranks in Japan, but is very, very highly rated and, and showed tremendously as a rookie in F2 last year, and we've seen in previous seasons, Charles Leclerc won it as a rookie, George Russell won it as a rookie, Landon Norris did very well in F2 as a rookie, and then they've thrived in Formula 1. So, yeah, what do you, what do you think of the three drivers that we've, we've, we've got? Who's going to be the best? Tsunoda, all day, I think. Um, I think um, Unequivocal. Yeah. It, yeah, I, that's one of the easier questions I thought that we had in this uh, in this piece. I mean, yeah, Mick Schumacher has earned his chance, you know, he's... He, Got under more of a spotlight than normal for a for you know junior you know driver coming up, um you know because obviously Mark was his dad but you know he does take a while to get into the swing of things in a new championship you know he hasn't blazed a trail through the junior ranks in the way that you know someone like Lando as you say or George has you know I think he's going to be perfectly competent um, Grand Prix driver but I think Tsunoda looks like he's got something a bit about him. I think there'll probably be some bad weekends for him because he's so inexperienced, but I think we'll see some real flashes of, oh, this guy's got something. Um, uh, Mazapan, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's he's not got a record that's outstanding against uh, you know, several dozen other 
sort of junior single yeah again I don't think it'll be an embarrassment or anything but I would expect Mick to be on top of him but I think Tsunoda will be more impressive than both I think I'd be quite worried if I was Haas I think they took too long to change their driver lineup, which was getting a bit stale but then they changed them both at the same time I was quite surprised by that I thought they should have changed one and kept the continuity going and having two rookies now they won't know where they are they won't know where how competitive they are you know when you've got an established guy um you can at least yeah, you can at least say, right, this, you know, George Russell's great for Williams. Wherever he puts the car, that's where they're at because we know now where, where he is. But they won't know that with their two. Um, so will it be the drivers? Will it be the car? Um, I can see them having a bit of a difficult season, to be honest. Indeed. I just also just wanted to, to, to give a little anecdote uh, regarding something around Mick Schumacher because I was just uh, thinking as we as I was putting things together for this podcast about um, it actually reminded me this anecdote comes from like my first few days when I joined Autosport Kev back in 2017 and uh, myself and Marcus Simmons went on a trip up to I think it's Banbury which is actually pretty near the Haas base I think that's is in Banbury uh, to visit Arden Motorsport ahead of that year's F2 and GP3 season because uh, I think they were running um, they, Jack Aitken had just left and they invited us up there you know just to have a chat about how the team's getting on and everything ahead of time and I was covering F2 and GP3 that year and I was obviously didn't I, I knew Marcus um, I'm, you know by reputation obviously reading his work and I do urge everyone to go to autosport.com plus and read his ranking of uh, Carlin's F1 graduates I think that's very good obviously we mentioned uh, Sebastian Vessel earlier on in the piece features highly in that um, but obviously I, I didn't know him personally didn't know him as a colleague so I was you know chatting to him a few things and, and obviously he covered European Formula 3 for many 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 years so one of the questions I had for him was how good is Mick Schumacher and what was really interesting was the point he raised about obviously very sad what happened to Michael Schumacher and and what that has has kept from Mick in terms of having all that experience all that talent with him at races as it comes up through the junior formulas like yeah he's got the, the surname which adds a lot of pressure and creates that reputation but he's he's also just you know it's it's, it's it's just interesting to consider as well what you know what he's also lost by obviously the terrible events there so anyway that's uh, that was an aside let's move well, on as to I, as I said in the piece in the magazine there Alex um you know I think that it's often undermined. And, you know, I mentioned it on our Sky coverage quite a few times last year when we were talking about F2. You know, I think we you have to consider, you know, the, the mental toughness that he's needed, right? He's got all the baggage of being Michael's son in terms of the pressure that it brings without the benefit of having Michael standing there in the garage in the pit lane at the track, unfortunately, to help him and to guide him and support him. And, you know... That's one of it's one of the you know real sadnesses um, I think that we we see in this in this story you know is um, we don't get to see Michael you know we saw Mick win that championship in Bahrain and I remember you know as I was watching it on the on the TV in the um, in our office uh, you know uh, sitting with people like Damon Hill and stuff who obviously raced against Michael the first thing we could all think of is how much of a shame it is that Michael isn't there to give his boy a hug when he gets out of the car, um, you know, and he's just won the F2 championship. So, no, I think, I think you know, it, it, it's, it'd be wrong to not not highlight the fact that this, this kid's had to take the mental, a great deal of mental toughness to, to get to where he's done today. Indeed, indeed, and you know it's, it'll be fascinating. Obviously, just 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 on, on on one level, just to see the Schumacher name back in F one. I mean, it really adds a really interesting dynamic, as we say, to the to the coming season. Um, and we'll move on to to your next question, Karun, which is: Will we finally see a Williams revival? Because that really did began. I enjoy I enjoyed your points about you know how how awful things were in twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, and they 
finally look like they've turned a corner. So how impressed were you with Williams last year and do you expect that to continue in 2021? I think they, they were very impressive last year. Um, I use the analogy in my written piece about, you know, Formula One teams being like big cargo ships. Um, and, and it, you know, they're not, they're not as agile as a little speedboat when it comes to swinging momentum around. Uh, which makes what McLaren did in 2019 impressive because they did a similar thing, didn't they? You know, 2018, they looked appalling and then managed to turn it around. Um, Williams did it to a, a, to, to a decent degree, I thought, in 2020. Um, you know, they were the biggest gainers if you look at performance versus, um, you know, the benchmark Mercedes team. Williams were the biggest gainers of 2020. You know, a huge, huge step forward and... And they were back racing people, you know, they were back out qualifying um, people, certainly in George's case, you know, I think more often than not, he was in, in Q2 last year um, and, and they, were, they were in the mix. Where they didn't complete their sort of um, objectives, I guess, in some way, is the fact that they didn't score any points last season. Uh, there were opportunities, obviously, in Imola and in Mugello, where George could have done it. Um, and, and and didn't happen. So I guess that's the next step for them on this recovery path is to try and make sure that they at least capitalize on a few occasions, you know, in, in a way that Haas and Alpha did, um, you know, when when there's a bit of low-hanging fruit and other people get trouble, you've you got to score the odd point and elevate yourself off the, you know, the bottom of the championship table. But yeah, no, on, on the whole, I thought they did a, a very, very solid job, a very good job. Um, obviously, now the new owners have come in. They've, you know, they've they've made some big decisions, bringing Jos Capito as as CEO. They've made a philosophical change to go for the Mercedes rear end from from next season onwards. So, you know, they they've clearly come in and and shown that they, um, you know, they're not afraid to be making these big bold decisions, which is great. You know, I think the team needed that. Indeed, indeed. Kev, do you think that Williams has got a harder job in terms of continuing its revival this year for, for various factors almost outside its control, really, in terms of the fact that it can't produce an all-new car? It's got a it's got a, a significant you know carryover requirements as all the teams have. But also, if we are expecting Ferrari to have produced a better power unit, then that elevates Haas and Alfa Romeo by default almost immediately because you, you saw them take a both take a step back where they wouldn't have expected to because of things being so difficult on the power front last year. Uh, I think more more the the former. I think that that the fact they can't continue that development, um, although they have stated, haven't they, that that car was sort of designed with the idea that there would be a two year life to the sort of overall concept anyway. So it might actually not hurt them too much. But yeah, it's probably they're not going to make they're not going to make another step that big again because you know that there's not that gain to be made. Um, so they just need to hopefully be in the mix again and maybe score a few points. Really, that would be a yeah, if they can edge it a little bit closer. I mean, remember on Karun's point about close to the front, that's closer to Mercedes. So the Ferrari engine thing doesn't affect them in terms of their the raw pace gain they had. Um, obviously, it will give them a problem if if Haas is more competitive. But as we've already said, I'm not. I think Haas could be could have a bit of a problem this year, and we don't know what how good the Ferrari power unit is yet. We're we're assuming that it's going to be better. Um, but if they had if they had a, a better engine just sitting there on the drawing board all along, then they'd have they'd have had it, wouldn't they? In twenty nineteen, instead of doing their going down their other route, maybe. But oh yeah, I don't know. I've, they probably will improve, but I, I don't think it will suddenly drop Williams out the back again. I think um, yeah, they've got the benefit of George for another season, 
so he'll he'll keep them he'll keep them in the mix and hopefully this time if there's an opportunity to score a point he um you know he'll he'll deliver Absolutely. I mean, I think I come back to those two examples of Imola and Mugello. I still maintain that Mugello was the was the bigger chance for him because of the way the tyre situation looked at the end of that Imola race and uh, and how well he was driving at Mugello as well. And um, but Karun, just on, on on Williams and how it sort of operates in terms of its its races, it was interesting. I spoke to George at the end of very very end of twenty twenty after we all got back from um, Abu Dhabi, and he was saying that. Um, Haas in particular, but also with Alpha, they tend to sort of gamble more on how they do their strategies. Or you look like Haas picked up points with Kevin Magnussen in Hungary by pitting at the very end of the formation lap and things like that. Like it, it was those early bold calls that got them to some points, whereas Williams was sort of refusing to do that. That sort of be the implication that, that, that George was saying. So do you think maybe that Williams needs to, to make a few more gambles in the way it, it goes about its races? It's an interesting point, actually. Um and if I'm perfectly honest, I haven't actually looked into it enough to, to know the answer to that. Um, it's possible, but um, it's yeah. At this moment, it's pretty. It's quite hard for me to actually say yes or no without without looking at it. Um, you know, with all due respect, the, the 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 race strategies between Haas and Williams and Alpha weren't the ones that that stand out in my memory from last season. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna struggle to answer that without. Without doing a bit of research, no, no, that, that's that's completely fair enough. But um, but then what about how much Russell brings to to Williams this year? Because it's also an interesting one in that, as we spoke about, he's a, he's a contender for the Mercedes seat. So you know, th- there is the the, the spectre of the potential for for some distractions, some some outside influence to to play a part there. But how do you see that him going in in twenty twenty two with uh, sorry in twenty twenty one with Williams? Ah, oh, he's a strong asset, isn't he? You know, unquestionably. So I think. The the Bahrain weekend obviously did George a lot of good, and it, it gave you know his career a massive massive boost. But I think it was also good for Williams to know that they have got a driver who is capable of running at the front and, and winning races, given the right tools. Um, you know, and and who was an equal to to Bottas in in if anything a bit better in the race. So I think um, you know that leaves Williams in a position where. Now they know. Okay, this guy is is obviously top quality. Um, you know, he was on average, I think, half a second, four four or five tenths ahead of Latifi, wasn't he? Across the seventeen races last year. So, you know, if they didn't have that, they they would often not be in Q two. Um, so he he is a huge huge asset to them, and I think a big big cog in the wheel of this this Williams recovery. So, um, if they do lose him to Mercedes, I think. That, that could be problematic. Obviously, it depends on who replaces him, but certainly I think losing George would be would be a big blow to the team. Well, let's come on to the last question you pose in the feature, Karun, which is, are 23 races too many and what should the calendar look like? Because it's interesting, as you say, that at the very beginning of this section, it's, 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 it's doubtful that you will get all those races in, unfortunately, because of the, you know, the, the pandemic situation. I mean, even, even the Australian Grand Prix moved to November, I think just the way things are playing out, you've got to have big suspicions that that race won't go ahead. The races in the Americas, South America, it's going to be very, very difficult. Not only those countries letting people through their borders, but the race teams returning to Europe from particularly South America, America, it's going to be very, very difficult. So, but 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 let, obviously let, let, let's leave that to one side. And I just wondered, you know, what do you think the right number of F1 races is in terms of a sort of a, a normal year, as it were? I just think back to, you know, when I was growing up, 16 was the magic number. Um, and then it, it 
it slowly snuck up, you know. We and but I think I think eighteen nineteen is you know somewhere somewhere there is, is the right amount because with every race you add, you you, you bring the value of the other ones down a bit, don't you? You know, um, and I think. I think I quite like having an off season. So there's a, you know, a chunk of time where we're all um, sort of switched off from F1. Then you start getting excited about preseason. Then you start getting excited about new cars. And then you've got this intrigue coming to the first race. Uh, whereas now that whole period has gotten shorter. Um, you know, nowadays for people at home who watch, yeah, I think of my own friends and family, you know, they know if they miss a Grand Prix, then there's another one coming up within a week or, or two weeks time it, it's you know they're coming so thick and fast from march till december now whereas you know when i was a kid it was like okay you've got this this nine month eight or nine month period where it's grand prix season and you get your little autosport sticker sheet would come at the start of the year and you, you know you'd stick the calendars out on the in your diary and you know those were your 16 big red red letter days and nothing you plan your life around it, you know, um, and I think that that's gone away a little bit now, um, just because we got so many races. So, but listen, at the end of the day, it's a commercial balancing act, right? You you know, the sport has got to find a way to make the business model commercially viable for Formula One, for Liberty, for the teams, you know, and for the FIA to to all operate. So, ultimately, the decision is slightly out of our hands. I think the the people I feel most. Um, sympathetic towards are people like the mechanics and the engineers because you know it's, it's all well and good for us um you know on the tv or, or for you guys you know the, with the written online press uh, all the drivers and team bosses who you know we swoop in on a thursday and and disappear off soon after the race um you know for those guys it means longer periods of time away from their families and particularly their kids um, you throw in testing as well, and all of a sudden they're away for half the year. And and I know for a fact that teams are now losing good people because you know it's not sustainable to have a family life if you're away for you know twenty six, twenty five, twenty six weeks of the year, um, including a few back to backs and things like that. It's not sustainable, and and therefore these good engineers and mechanics and people are starting to go and do things like WEC and Formula E, where they're away for half the time. So I think that there's some some sort of balancing act that needs to be reached for all of that. Um, sorry, I'm going on a bit. But in, in terms of the actual calendar, I think, you know, we we saw last year, it was nice to go to some, some old tracks, wasn't it? It was nice to see a good mix. We've got, you know, I enjoy going to Baku. I think that, that the street race there is cool. I think Singapore is well established as, a, as an entertaining race to go to. Um, I have noticed that the uh, what should be the San Marino Grand Prix is now, I'm going to read this out, is called the Formula One Pirelli Grand Premio del Made in Italy e del Emilia Romagna at the Autodromo Internazionale Enzo e Dino Ferrari. I can confirm, never right now, that that combination of words will not be seen in Autosport magazine. <laughs> I mean... Quite right, then. Just call it the San Marino Grand Prix. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, so obviously we're going back to Imola, um, which... I think I think the current cars have actually outgrown it. To be honest, you know the, the racing was great on the restart, but the rest of it was a bit dull. Um, so yeah, I think you know we've got a good mix of tracks. There's no complaints about that. I just think you know more than twenty starts to just get a little bit too much. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I'm a very similar generation to Karun, and 16 is my magic number as well. Um, uh, I, yeah, I think I'd say 16 to 18 would be my I, ideal calendar. I think, just talking a bit more about the composition of that calendar, I think it was great to see other new tracks coming. It really gave F1 a bit of a refresh uh, to see cars at new venues, and I thought that Mugello and Algarve were, were good, uh, and I'd like to see them back on the calendar at some point. Whether you start rotating... Uh, circuits if that can work financially whether you do you know you have a core number and then you add others that are that rotate and you know every other year if that could that could be a possibility i, I didn't think imola was all that all that good and everyone got very excited about it and it was great to go back to an old track but the cars were, were too quick weren't they you could see it felt like a really small track suddenly uh, which was I, I think that tells you a lot about the current cars and how awesome they are but yeah i, I i'm not overly excited by the fact that we're going back to imola again uh, this year in, in, in theory. And also, I, I I I know this year we're kind of, yeah, there are other factors at play, but I'd really like to see the season finale somewhere else uh, because Abu, Abu Dhabi, you know, I can understand why F1 goes there and that all makes sense, but as a season finale, it's just always, for me, falling a bit flat when you compare to some of the some of the title deciders we've seen, at, you know, Interlagos or Suzuka and places like that. Just feel like Abu Dhabi is a bit of a, bit of a damp squib as a finale, but that maybe that's just me. No, no, I, I, I fully agree. Although oh, I mean, it was like there. watching window testing, wasn't it? Last, <laughs> it was. You know, it's just, um, yeah. I, I wasn't actually in Abu Dhabi. It was one of my races off, so I was watching it at home, and it's, it was just, you know, I fell asleep. I just, um, so yeah, no, I agree. I think in an ideal world, we'd all like the championship to be decided in a epic finale at Interlagos, like we had in. 2007, 8, 12, you know, races like that. They were sensational. But, uh, hey, it's not an ideal world, is it? Exactly, exactly. Well, Corinne, um, we've come to the end of all the questions that you posed for Autosport magazine. But I just thought, as we've got you here and, and your role with Sky Sports, we, we, we should ask you about, you know, how things are going in terms of working in, in Formula One TV. Obviously, much, much, much difficult, as everybody knows, with the COVID restrictions currently. But how also are things like Drive to Survive? How is that influencing uh, producing F1 TV shows the, uh, these days? Uh, I think, you know, I think we, we're, we're lucky with Sky. We... You know, I think Formula One have and the teams recognise the the investment that Sky have put into the sport. You know, if you if you look at the annual spend, you know, over two hundred million is spent across the three territories between Italy, Germany, and um, and the UK. You know, between the rights and the actual production costs, you know, it's a huge investment to be making into our into the sport. Um, and, and so, therefore, we're fortunate. You know, we're fortunate to have the access that we need and the positioning we need in the paddock to talk to people and to 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 uh, be able to tell the story to ultimately the people at home, which is nice. Um, and I know, especially for, you know, a lot of you guys who haven't been able to travel to races in the last, um, in the last season and, and probably will be the case for the first half of this year, maybe. Um, you know, I often get texts from, from our friends in the media saying, you know, they're quite lucky that we're able to put out so much content you know the hours that we do over the weekend helps I think a lot of other people tell their stories as well so um, you know for me it's it's been fun you know I get to to go to work with my friends and talk about a sport I love which um, you know it's just very lucky. 
and and that that's something that that we share at Autosport. That is, it's, it's almost like it's the, it's the cliches. You know, you're not you're not uh, you're not working a day in your life if if you enjoy your job, that sort of thing. So, uh, so well, we we've come to the end of of all the questions, as I said, guys. And uh, thank you very much, uh, Kareem, for coming on. Wish you all the best with the new season. Uh, and yeah, Kev as well. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. And of course, thanks to everybody listening along. Now, just before we go, we'd like to remind you that the latest issue of Autosport magazine came out on Thursday and will be available on the supermarket shelves and in newsagents, as well as on the doormats of subscribers. There'll be a new issue of the magazine for you to pick up every Thursday, packed full of news, analysis and the usual stunning photography. And of course, if you want unlimited access to Autosport from the comfort of your home, visit autosport.com slash plus to find out how to subscribe to our digital package. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport Podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 18 t Fiber presents a straightforward moment. Your wine? Thanks. I'll pretend I know what I'm doing before saying it's good. And I'll pretend I don't know you're pretending. Are you a gagillionaire? Yeah, I have AT&T Fiber. The straightforward pricing has inspired me to be more straightforward. Me too. Ugh, this wine. I'll fetch you a better one. Straightforward is better. No equipment fees, no data caps, no price increase at 12 months. Live like a gagillionaire with AT&T Fiber. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.